1: Tonight on The Readout.
2: So it's highly it offensive forward. when someone lies on you, and it's highly offensive when they it try touch. to implicate that you slept with somebody the first day you met with them, and I take exception to it. So after after that, you started dating shortly thereafter, correct? A lie. That's okay. one of your lies.
1: Okay. A defiant DA Fonnie Willis on the witness stand in Atlanta, pushing back hard against a series of degrading, personal questions as Donald Trump's lawyers tried to get her removed from the Georgia election interference case. Also, the stage is set for Trump's first criminal trial as a judge in the Hush Money case sets a date for jury selection. Plus, the Republican Party is now a wholly owned subsidiary of Trump Incorporated. He's in total control of the Republican agenda in Congress. And tonight we're learning of a push from Trump's allies to have him give the official Republican response to President Biden's State of the Union address. You really can't make it up. But we begin tonight with the dramatic scenes of Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis sitting in the witness box. It was a surreal experience, given the fact that she, that the man that she is prosecuting, Donald Trump and his co-defendants, have yet to stand trial. She was in the witness box today because the lawyer for one of the defendants, Mike Roman, who worked for the Trump campaign, accused Willis of benefiting from prosecuting the defendant because of her personal relationship with Nathan Wade, the special prosecutor in the Trump case. Willis angrily pushed back on what she called personal attacks on her and Wade. You've been intrusive into people's personal
2: lives. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial.
1: Lawyers for Roman and the other defendants pushing to disqualify Willis and Wade basically claim that Willis personally benefited from hiring Wade because she would financially benefit from his employment as his romantic partner. Why does that matter? Because it's key in determining if there was a conflict of interest. The day started with testimony from a disgruntled former employee, Robert, Robin Yurti, who was let go from the prosecutor's office. She testified that Willis's romantic relationship with Wade began before he was hired for the prosecution of Trump. Willis, who wasn't supposed to testify, walked into the courtroom. It was clear she was angered by the accusations and she wanted to set the record straight. Nobody gives me anything. I am sure that the source of the money is
2: always the work, sweat and tears of me. You do not know where that money came from. I do know where it came from. It came from my sweat and tears.
1: And to make a finer point, when under questioning by Trump's lawyer, she made it crystal clear why she didn't need Mr. Wade for financial benefit.
2: It's interesting that we're here about this money. Mr. Wade is used to women that, uh, as he told me one time, the only thing a woman can do for him is make him a sandwich. We would have brutal arguments about the fact that I am your equal. I don't need anything from a man. A man is not a plan. A man is a companion. I don't need anybody to foot my bills. The only man who's ever foot my bills completely is my daddy.
1: Well, alrighty then. <laughs> Judge McAfee will now have to determine if both Willis and Wade had a financial interest in the case. It is unclear where this will end. But earlier this week, he said it was possible that the facts alleged could merit disqualification. Now, here's why all this matters. If Fannie Willis is disqualified, her entire Fulton County DA's office would be removed. And then a state prosecutor's counsel would have to appoint a special prosecutor, which means, drumroll, yet another delay. Willis has already been disqualified by a separate judge when it comes to another defendant, Georgia Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, who was a fake Trump elector because she hosted a fundraiser for the Democrat who lost to Jones in the 2022 election. That Jones probe still does not have a new prosecutor 18 months later. Not at issue? The accusations that Trump and others tried to overturn the election. Willis will be back on the stand tomorrow. And joining me now is Katie Fang, trial attorney and host of The Katie Fang Show on MSNBC. She is at the courthouse in Atlanta, the site of today's explosive testimony. Former federal prosecutor Paul Butler, law professor at Georgetown University and an MSNBC legal analyst. And Aaron Haynes, editor-in-large of The 19th and an MSNBC contributor. Katie, I will start with you. Those fireworks today were riveting to watch. Legally, what was the import?
3: Well, legally, what came out today was evidence, and Before today, all that was going on, Joy, was innuendo, gossip, and very cruel and nasty, salacious rumors about Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade. And today was put up or shut up time for the defense. The defense has the burden in this case to be able to prove that there was some type of personal financial benefit that has been derived by Fannie Willis that would compromise this case. The defense also has to prove that this relationship predated when Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade was appointed to his Role. But the only thing that we heard today that might even come close to helping the defense was from a former employee of the Fulton County DA's office, Robin Yurdy, also a former acquaintance and friend of Fannie Willis. She testified first this morning after some legal wrangling about who was going to be called first. And she said that she believed that the personal relationship between Wade and Willis began as early as October of 2019. However, she conveniently left out Joy when she was initially called to testify that she was given the option of, Either resigning or being fired from her job at the Fulton County DA's office. And that since she had basically resigned in 2022, she had not had any contact whatsoever with Fonnie Willis. But it really took Fonnie Willis to do the job today. We know now why a lot of defense attorneys say to go toe to toe with Fannie Willis is a dangerous proposition Mm. for their clients. Because Fannie Willis had to come in and basically say, like you played for that clip for the viewers, that she doesn't need a man to pay her bills or to give her money. She also doesn't need a man in the form of Nathan Wade to do her defense. She took the stand, waiving any objections to the subpoena that was served upon her to testify in this motion to disqualify in order to clear her name. And straight out of the gate, Joy, she made clear that the evidence would show that she was corroborating what Nathan Wade said under sworn testimony earlier, that she and Nathan Wade did not begin a personal relationship until after he had been appointed special prosecutor. Also importantly, that she pays her own way, that she is given cash to nathan wade to reimburse him for any type of personal trips that they have taken so under georgia law joy quickly you have to have an actual conflict of interest it cannot be speculative or theoretical and at this point the defense has not carried its burden to prove through uncontroverted testimony or evidence that there is any conflict of interest at all
1: yeah i think what they did prove today is that Fani willis Ain't nothing to play with, and I think Donald Trump's people should be shaking in their boots knowing they're going to have to face that on the other side of their cases. Um, let me play another piece of that to the point that you just made, um, and then I have a question for Paul. This is uh, on whether or not she told her team about her personal relationship with Nathan Wade. Take a listen.
4: Is there anyone else who knew about it? And then you can explain. I,
2: I don't know. I don't think so. I certainly didn't um, go out telling my business to the world. Okay, so...
5: The best of your recollection, you didn't inform anyone on the prosecution team that the
2: individual that you had chosen to lead the prosecution team had a personal relationship with you. Is that correct? That's inaccurate. Your, Your question is inaccurate. Because of the way you phrased the question, you said, when I chose him, I didn't inform people of a personal relationship. We have defined personal as romantic. It is an
1: inaccurate way to state the question. And she did that throughout. And I'm old and I'm going to age myself. I'm old enough, Paul, to remember the O.J. Simpson case. And anybody who remembers that will know that later on, Christopher Darden, the African-American prosecutor, if you'll remember him, and there's the other lady you see, Marsha Clark, in that photo, were having a personal relationship of a romantic nature during the time they were prosecuting O.J. Simpson. I highly doubt, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that O.J. Simpson would have had a cause of action to say, throw this case out because the two of them— we're sleeping together. And so my question is, so what? If after he became a prosecutor on the case, they developed a personal relationship, so what?
6: Uh, so what indeed, Joy, because I'm even older than you. I remember that case well, and I worked as a prosecutor in two different offices. In both of those offices, like in many other workplaces, there were romantic relationships, stuff happened.
1: We're going to hope that oh, the Internet is the Internet has stolen Paul Butler. The Internet has stolen. Paul. I'm, we're going to fix Paul Butler's audio. We're going to get back to him. But that's the so what of it. There's another piece of this, Aaron. And it was to me the attitude of the people questioning Fonnie Willis toward her and her response to it. Let me play this clip of Fonnie Willis speaking to the lawyers, questioning we'll her about what they're me. not going Maybe. to do.
2: You don't have to yell at me. I'm able to understand. I, so I would ask you to not yell at me. And please do not yell at me.
1: Aaron. let's talk about Fonnie Willis as a witness and Fonnie Willis as a prosecutor, because that, to me, that tells me she's nothing to play with.
7: Yeah, I mean, Joy, I think watching this, uh, you could see, you know, Fonnie Willis was if standing on business was a witness. (laughs) That was what we saw today. And what we also saw today, frankly, was a clinic in Black womanhood, and particularly high-profile Black womanhood, right? If you're a Black woman in this country, you don't have to be a district attorney prosecuting the former president of the United States to really understand what it means to have your integrity or your professionalism questioned, uh, or the urge to defend your character or reputation, right? And so that's what you really saw on display today. Yes, she was angry, but she was also insulted. She was offended. Uh, you know, if, if, if somebody thinks that they're being lied on, you know, and, and especially Fannie Willis, prepare to defend yourself, because that was exactly what she came to that stand prepared
1: to do today of her own free will. Well, and the thing is, Katie, you as a woman of color who have to stand in a courtroom, you know this all too well. You know, I have a book about this, about the way they did this with Merle Evers Williams. Be pretty, but not too pretty. Be, you know, forceful, but not too forceful. Don't be loud. Don't be angry. Excuse me if you're questioning my integrity and accusing me of hiring somebody that I was having an affair with when I'm telling you the timeline and then asking, did my kids live at my house? You want to know how much money I have? Is he giving me cash? She was insulted and rightfully so. This idea that women of color have to sit there and be demure and take it. There were people on social media who were saying, oh, she's coming in too hot. No, she wasn't. She was offended and she had a right to be offended.
3: Yeah. So, you know, there is something to be said about decorum and professionalism, but you didn't hear anything that wasn't decorum and professionalism from Fannie Willis. I'm glad that you bring up this example of being a woman of color, especially in a courtroom. There are more women that are in law school today than there ever were when I was in law school. But the problem is when it comes to women of color, we're so sorely, sorely underrepresented when it comes to court, especially, especially, Joy, when it comes to trials, when it comes to trial lawyers. And so for a woman to have to defend the fact that she makes her own money The fact that her daddy told her to make sure that she had some money stashed away. My mom told me the same damn thing. Make sure that you have money stashed away to take care of yourself because you shouldn't count on someone else. Right, Aaron? And that's the thing. Why should anybody have to defend this? But under the law, unfortunately, because the other side made these representations that met this threshold that forced this evidentiary hearing to have to come to pass. That is the reason why Fannie Willis and Nathan Way got dragged into court. But I will remind our viewers too, Joy, under Georgia law, you do not disqualify a prosecutor simply because there is a personal relationship. In fact, in this case, you have lawyers on the defense side that are married to each other. You have lawyers on the defense side that are dating each other. And yet nobody has made a big stink about that. It is only the defense making a big stink about that for Fonnie Willis. The important thing that everybody has to remember what Fonnie Willis said today is this. She's not on trial. It's the people that tried to steal an election, the state of Georgia that are on trial. This is a sad, sorry, sideshow that needs to end.
1: Let me, amen, let me let Paul Butler finish his thought. We've got you back. Go
6: ahead, Paul. So on that point, I think I would have coached DA Willis to be less emotional because it can come across as being defensive. She has to think about the jury pool. So I think Part of this was her desire to present herself as a public official who's honest, who acts with integrity and who the defense attorneys are dragging through the mud because they don't want to focus on their clients. And that's absolutely true. But I understand why she's angry. And I think D.A. was was challenging a society where black women don't get to be angry, even when that anger is righteous. So I think in the end, she came across as credible.
1: Yeah. And again, I will again yeah, and state I- that the two of the prosecutors are prosecutor OJ were having a relationship. I'm going to go to you, Erin, because we're seeing this throughout, not just with Corey, not just with uh, Fonnie Willis, with Corey Bush. You know, if she was not a black woman, I, they would be calling her relationship with her the bodyguard that um, she's got this handsome, you know, guy who's her security. She falls in love with him. They're trying to turn that into a scandal. Fonnie Willis, she's not even with this guy anymore. This is their ex. Uh, you know, it, it is it is it is so offensive, I think, to a lot of women who are watching this and black women in particular to watch her go through this.
7: Yeah. And I think that was why you saw, uh, you know, she was up there trying to clarify, trying to correct the record as she saw it, Black women are never going to answer a question with a simple yes or no, because it's usually never that simple for Black women, right? I mean, to Katie's point, there was a lot of focus on money, right? I think about, you know, Fannie Willis was thinking about, you know, her career, how how, how much work it took to get where she is investing $50,000 of her own money just to even win this DA race. And now she has to sit in this courtroom and kind of defend her credentials, defend her reputation. That certainly would explain partly why she was so upset. And and, and the clip that you played, uh, a lot of people of color, especially, you know, black women were raised by black parents of a certain age who taught us to always keep cash and to never depend on another person for anything. She was literally insulted by the insinuation that Nathan Wade was taking care of her or that they were not equals. It sounded like that was part of the reason that they broke up. Uh, but, But to Paul's point too, I mean, this was a collective moment for black America, particularly black women. For many of them, this was Fonnie Willis taking the stand even though she didn't want to be there, but showing that she was there because
1: she was compelled to say not today. And happy Black History Month to all. Erin Haynes, thank you. Katie and Paul are sticking with us up next on The Readout. It was something, y'all, I hope you didn't miss it. Today's other major legal development, a New York judge sets the date for Trump's first criminal trial just weeks away, setting up the extraordinary dynamic of the Republican frontrunner, spending weeks in a courtroom as he runs for president. You really can't make it up. The Readout continues after this.
8: we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future.
1: Donald Trump is in an ongoing game of whack-a-mole with four different criminal trials in the pipeline. He's doing everything and anything he can to just keep them from popping up, at least until after the November election, if ever. But today, the first of his criminal trials has been given the green light with jury selection set to begin on March 25th. That was the decision today by New York Judge Juan Marchand in Trump's hush money case. Now, as you may remember, Trump faces 34 felony charges in this case. It centers on accusations that he falsified business records to cover up the $130,000 hush money payment to adult film star Stormy Daniels during the 2016 presidential election so that she would stay quiet about her alleged 2006 sexual encounter with Trump. Trump, who did not have to be there today, was in the courtroom anyway to hear the news. Not surprisingly, he called the decision ridiculous and another example of election interference. Also in the courtroom was Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, whose office brought the charges almost a year ago. Bragg has insisted that this is not a case about hush money and whether Trump did in fact have an extramarital affair with a porn star, but is really about an illegal campaign contribution made in order to deceive voters and bury negative information about Trump that could have hurt his electoral prospects. The judge says that he expects the trial will last about six weeks. And while this case may not seem as consequential as the other criminal cases against Trump, the others are all caught up in delays with other obstacles, mostly at Trump's doing. Regardless of that, come March 25th, Trump will make history yet again, becoming the first former U.S. president to stand trial on criminal charges. Back with me are Katie Fang and Paul Butler. Paul, I want to start with you because we've talked about this a lot. I mean, people sort of represent this as the least important case and it got shoved to the back with all of Jack Smith's cases. But now it's kind of an interesting sort of delicious New York irony that it'll be the first case because it's the case that's the most about the way Trump behaves. So what do you make of it
6: being first? So Alvin Bragg says this is also a case about election interference. The reason that Trump paid Story Daniels that hush money was because he wanted to win election. And he thought that if Stormy Daniels, if that story got out, that would hurt his chances. I think today was also a story about two different judges that we think about what happened in Fulton County. I don't think Judge McAfee should have even allowed the Georgia hearing because whatever happened between D.A. Willis and Mr. Wade has nothing to do with whether Trump and his co defendants tried to interfere with the election. But some judges are extra cautious, in part because they want to insulate any guilty verdict from appeal. But Judge Merchant in Manhattan, he did not come to play. He's on to Trump's games and he's ready for them. So one drop the mic moment was when Top Lance, Trump's defense attorney, was complaining that the March 25th trial date would interfere with Trump's campaigning. Judge uh, Merchant said, well, hey, last year, when March 25th, 2024 looked a long way away, you wrote this letter that said if the trial date started on March 25th, that would be enough time. For Trump to effectively (laughs) campaign. That's
1: great. Um, And the the other piece piece of it is how long it might take, because, you know, Katie, the question of a six week trial, you know, they've got a star witness at Michael Cohen who, you know, he's been right about a whole lot. Like, I don't think he's been wrong yet. So they've got him. So they're going to try to impeach him, obviously. But it seems to me that given that he had that he wrote the check and has the evidence and went to jail for it, should it take six weeks?
3: I think you always hedge joy on the longer amount of time so that you don't actually short thrift the parties. And the reason why is you have to get jurors that are willing to sit in service for that period of time. So you don't want to tell them it's going to be shorter when it actually may end up being longer. And so I think that is the reason why you heard the six weeks. But, you know, there's a saying, right, first in time, first in line. Who would have thought that the first of the four (laughs) criminal indictments against Donald Trump would be the one that went to trial? Understandably, a state court case, taking the back seat to a federal case would have made sense. But we heard today that Judge Chutkin and Judge Morshan spoke about whether or not there was a scheduling conflict. And Chutkin indicated that there wasn't. But the underlying theme, and to Paul's point about how we actually saw how Donald Trump operates, is theft. It's stealing. 2016, Trump trying to steal the election, right, by trying to hide these payments that he made to Stormy Daniels. Trump trying to steal the election in Georgia from the lawful votes that were done in Georgia. Trump trying to steal the election in 2020 from the American voters. And that's why we have the D.C. 1-6 case. And then Trump trying to steal classified documents and national secrets in the mar a case. All he does is theft and fraud. That is his jam. And he's finally going to be called to task for it. But I agree with both of you. It is so annoying to hear people poo-poo this case. They say, oh, it's not so important as the other ones. But let's be frank, between all of us, if any of us was looking at multiple felony counts for a case... We'd all be like, OK, pump the brakes. This is, you know, some serious stuff. It's the same thing for him. He's citizen Trump, as he's been called now by the courts. He is no longer the president of the United States, and he should be held. There should be accountability. He should be held to account for what he's done criminally wrong.
1: And, Paul, you know, there is—and there is, I think, a delicious irony that it is the state of New York, his home state, that is holding him to account first. This is where E. Jean Carroll won a massive settlement with $83 million settlement on top of the $5 million she got before for him defaming and sexually assaulting her. This is the state where next week Tish James is probably going to get uh, win a $300-plus million settlement that could bankrupt the Trump company and run it out of New York on a rail. And this is the place where the stormy Daniel Payoff happened. We've seen the, the check with his magic marker signature on it. It is kind of poetic, isn't it? It's poetic justice.
6: It's poetic justice, and it could also be legal justice focusing on a state prosecution. If Trump wins re election, he could not pardon himself in this case. So I think that that's key. But I think we could also see both this trial and the uh, Washington, D.C. federal election interference trial happen before the election. If the Manhattan case goes forward in late spring, then the uh, federal uh, trial could start in midsummer, And that would be enough time, again, for a uh, verdict in both of those cases.
1: And by the way, uh, Katie, the only case where he seems to be protected from justice is the one where the Florida judge seems to be trying to Squash the case, and that would be the documents case.
3: Here's the scale. Here's the thumb of Aileen Cannon on the scale of justice in Florida. Listen, it's frustrating that case should have already It should have gone to trial this month. We know that it got punted into May. And even now, we don't think it's going to go to trial in May. There's been a lot of stuff that I've been covering in Fort Pierce even this week, if you can believe it's been a long week, from classified (laughs) information procedures, act sections. There's been so much back and forth. But you know what? All of these cases standing alone, Joy, have importance in and of themselves. And I think that we also have to keep our focus on that. I do think Alvin Bragg is going to deliver a win for the state of New York, but I also want to kind of temper expectations, which we have to do, right? There's an appellate process that will go into play as well here. Any conviction that comes, state or federal, is going to result in appeals. So let's hope that SCOTUS moves fast on the presidential immunity appeal, and let's make sure that those cases go to trial.
1: Well, and and to, to let's to wrap this up, Paul. I mean, the case in New York it is important. You know, did, you know, Michael Cohen did the right thing. Step step forward, and he's testifying in this case at personal risk. I mean, all of the people who are going to testify are taking physical risks because Donald Trump threatens his people, threaten them. Right as soon as their names come up, these people don't have personal security. It's an important case because all legal cases are important.
6: All legal cases are important, and. 34 felony charges with a uh-huh. Manhattan jury, a Manhattan jury isn't going to be unfair uh, to the former president, but they're not going to give him any credit because he's the former president. The president uh-huh. will be tried by a jury of his peers. And for the former yep. president, I think that's quite frightening. Yeah. Uh,
3: I'm, per, uh, and I'm sure he's scared.
1: And, and, Indeed. Katie Fang and, and Joy. Quickly, I'm sorry, I'm out of time. Quickly, I'm out of time. I'm so sorry. Okay, oh,
3: I'm quick, sorry. Very quick. Alan Weisselberg. Okay, Remember, it. he's in negotiations for the perjury. That's right. So keep That's that right. in mind That's too right. for this upcoming case. Keep that in mind. too. Thank you.
1: All right, out of time. Sorry, coming up. Sorry, guys, coming up. Trump looks to tighten his grip on the Republican Party by endorsing an election denier and his own daughter as in a daughter-in-law as co-chairs of the RNC.
0: Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. <laughs> Next, don't give it to How about that? That's a premium banging, Olafson sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. Acura wins that, <laughs> that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Next, don't give it to Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com.
3: Hey, it's Mel Robbins
1: As Donald Trump faces the growing reality that he actually has to go to trial for at least one of his criminal indictments before the November election, one thing is becoming more and more clear. He's scared. And in his panic, he realizes that the only way to stay out of prison is to be president again. Trump's game plan to do that is the same as ever. Grab as much media attention as possible to recreate the conditions of his election in 2016. But since most TV networks won't breathlessly cover his rallies the way they did in 2016, his nonsensical lies, they, you know, that he spews on a daily basis, they reach just a fraction of the people that they used to, basically just his ardent cult members. So in a desperate attempt to get the cameras back on him, he's doing the most, as the kids say. Things like showing up to court for hearings and trials, even though he doesn't even have to be there. Yet complaining that, Showing up at trial takes him off the campaign trail when he's really just there to get on TV and spew his talking points to a wider audience. And new reporting today from NBC News says Trump's aides and allies are even considering having him give the Republican response to President Biden's State of the Union address next month so that he can get some primetime coverage. He's also tightening his death grip on the Republican Party, pushing them to kill conservative border deals they previously supported just to deny Biden a win and endorsing an election denier and his own daughter-in-law to head the RNC so they can potentially use all of the party's diminishing assets to pay Trump's sprawling legal bills. Joining me now is Jason Johnson, professor of politics and journalism at Morgan State University and an MSNBC contributor. So this is blatant. It's, it's sad. Donald Trump doesn't get the breathless coverage. Even this network played all his rallies, right? And a lot of people blame the media for electing him. Media's not doing that again. So showing up at trials and doing the RNC uh, response. Yeah.
4: Look, we can't play all the old hits, right? At some point, (laughs) at some point, you gotta get on stage. You gotta give us something new. He doesn't have anything new, right? right? Uh, there's not a major financial crisis that he can run off of. There's not a major crisis that Trump hasn't manufactured on his own that he can run on. And he really was a media creation in 2016. It was coming off the apprentice. It was calling in and and saying, hey, I'm this person, I'm that person. None of those things are the case anymore. And so if the only way that you can make people want to vote for you for president is showing up to your trial on time, (laughs) I don't know that that's really a good plan.
1: And so the other thing that they're trying to do is they're using the age thing, which is really ironic, and the age and memory thing, because Trump really not sure whether E. Jean Carroll is his ex wife. Like he actually don't know the difference between these two women I, and, I, under oath. What was
4: it? What was it? Book, computer, bullet, whatever it is. Right. I mean, the guy. I have a very yeah. smart brain. None of that makes sense, right? Yeah. And and I, I, Joy, I'm I'm very 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 adamant about this because I think you know we all watched John Stewart when he debuted on Monday and talked about old age there is a difference between being old and being incompetent and crazy, right? right. Joe Biden is old. He's going to be old tomorrow. He's going to (laughs) be old in nine months, right? But he's not incompetent. Right. And that is the issue with Donald Trump. He is incompetent and he is corrupt. And that is way more damaging to me than Joe Biden occasionally stumbling over words.
1: Right. And so so we know that now her, and every time people are saying, I'm like, her, why are the ladies, she a good singer. Why is she involved in this? But we're talking about her, Mr. Her, the guy who did the the, uh, independent counsel report about Biden's retention of documents. Apparently, he's not going to testify on March 12th. We know what that is. He's a conservative. Right. He comes from a conservative legal background. He's been associated. I think his lawyer was D. Bannon in floor or something like that. So now he gets a chance to get in front of a friendly congressional panel mm-hmm. and talk about how incompetent and mentally uh, sort of damaged Don, by Joe Biden is. My question, though, is, is this an opportunity really? Because Democrats are going to be there, too. It's not like they're going to have a a hearing with no Democrats. And Democrats are really good at picking their smart ones. Right. And Republicans are really picking their kooky ones. Yes. It's going to be an interesting hearing.
4: Well, look, here's the other issue. You can only go so far with this, right? Like, Like we saw this with Nikki Haley. You start playing with age, mm. and you get really close to offending people, right? Yeah. Because guess what? There are a lot of men and women who are in their late seventies and early eighties. Wait, and
1: guess who votes the most? Yes, exactly. the older people, senior citizens. People right? over sixty are the highest percentage voters. At a certain point, they're going to be like, "Okay, now you're doing too much." Exactly.
4: Exactly. So we're not talking about again. We're not talking about an individual here who's incapable of speaking. We're not talking about. I mean, look, I'm old enough to remember learning as a kid about like Ronald Reagan falling asleep in meetings. We haven't heard that. Come on. Right. We're not hearing about those kinds of issues. So. The Republicans, as per the usual, are going to overplay their hand because they're playing for an audience of one. Right. And you think you're going to try and convince people to not vote for a president for being something that, God willing, all of us will be able to that be, which is somebody in their
1: late 70s. I, I just I don't think that plays the way they think it's going to. I and mean, also Trump is old, too. Uh, well, this is an issue, though, I think, that is real mm-hmm. for Biden. Uh, and it is the Gaza issue. Slate yes. has a piece that talks about. It talks about the, the thousand pastors who signed this letter calling for a ceasefire. And and there is now, I think, growing reality. This is not just a talk. About, and it isn't just Arab Americans and mm-hmm. Muslim Americans. It's black folks right. that really cannot justify this dual image of Joe Biden as this compassionate man who cares about people and is super compassionate when people die. Mm-hmm. And this guy who seems so hard hearted toward the Palestinians. It's a real problem at this point. Right. I,
4: I think there is. There are multiple ways this is playing out amongst black voters, and we don't know how it's going to look yet. So there's still a lot of people, as unpopular as it may be to say, still a lot of people who don't care. Mm -hmm. Objectively speaking, there's lots of people who do not care. There are lots of people who say the 14 year old boy or girl who got shot by the cops downtown in my city is way more important to me than anything that happens outside of this country. I'd say that's still the majority of black voters. But what you have. Wait, is that still
1: true when the three Americans from Georgia died? Because I heard a lot of people saying, whoa, it's a reminder that we serve disproportionately. And if we go into Middle East war, that's going to be a lot of black bodies. But
4: that's if people think we're going to war. And I don't think anyone believes Joe Biden is going to put troops on the ground because that that changes. It's the same thing with Ukraine, right? Nobody thought we were actually putting troops on the ground when that happened. Happens. But I do think that what you have is African-American thought leaders are saying, hey, wait a minute, this is a problem. If you've got black church people marching from Philadelphia to the White House to talk about this issue. And let me be clear, church pastors are not liberals. This isn't somebody. No. This isn't some loud teenager talking. Oh, on wait, it's not just
1: the pastors. The pastors are saying to the White House, my parishioners, exactly. particularly my parishioners under 40, are not down with this. They see themselves in the Palestinians and they are not They don't understand why Joe Biden is this way with this group of people.
4: I think that from a purely strategic standpoint, the president has to do better than simply talking to people. There is a point at which I think people want to see a policy change. Now, right. what policy change he's going to make and whether that makes a huge difference down the road, we don't know when that's going to be. But I do think that we're reaching this point now where it's not just an obscure idea. Like I said, yeah. I think the majority of people don't care, but the people who do care, yeah. it's going to matter to them. And I will say this, and I, I Joe, you know this, I loathe these sort of generic things of in the barbershop. Yeah. There are yeah. other places that black people go, you can see me I'm not in the barbershop <laughs> that often, right? But I do did actually meet yeah. my first barbershop person, and I had a whole discussion just a couple weeks ago in Maryland, where somebody was like, yeah, this is a problem for me. And I will tell you, I had never heard anyone who cared up until this point. Yeah. So I think it's beginning to see down, to yeah. and there's something that the president's going to have to do.
1: Have to do. Uh, Jason Johnson, always good to have. It's good to have a political scientist, Thank friend. <laughs> uh, we appreciate you, Jason. Thank you very much. Coming up, the Putin party. Tucker Carlson and Marjorie Taylor Greene blur the lines between the party of Trump and the party of Putin. As the affair between Republicans and autocrats. Up. And before we go to the break, be sure to check out the readout blog for a new special series that is launching this week. The reconstruction series celebrates how the black community is reclaiming its own narrative as right-wingers continue to attack it over the next several weeks. You can find interviews featuring civil rights icon Claudette Colvin, Bishop William Barber, award-winning chef Michael Twitty, Emmett Till's cousin Wheeler Parker, and much more. Check it out on msnbc.com slash readoutblog.
5: With the backing of CIA, of course, the organization you wanted to join back in the day, as I understand. We should thank God they didn't let you in, although it is a serious organization. I understand.
1: (laughs) That was part of Russian President Vladimir Putin's two-hour lecture to confused-faced journalist Tucker Carlson, journalist being in scare quotes, and one of the few things that he said that wasn't propaganda or a lie. For his part, journalistic interpro- for his uh, latest journalistic enterprise, the former Fox host, conspiracy theorist, and avowed critic of Ukraine, traveled all the way to Russia for that interview, where he barely got a word in edgewise and let the Russian dictator filibuster on everything, lying about Russian history, European politics, and NATO. On Wednesday, Putin leaned even harder into mocking Tucker than just making fun of his failed CIA dreams to his face. Putin told Russian media that he was surprised by how soft the interview was. Quote, I honestly thought it would be aggressive and ask so-called and he would ask so-called sharp questions. And I wasn't just ready for that. I wanted it because it would have given me the opportunity to respond sharply in kind. But he chose a different tactic. It's, <laughs> no, it's worth noting that Tucker's sit down with the Russian dictator was released last week on Thursday days before Donald Trump said he'd let Russia do whatever the hell they want to NATO countries that didn't pay enough for their own defense. Trump doubled down on that last night.
8: One of the heads of the country stood up and said, does that mean that if we don't pay the bills, that you're not going to protect us? I said, that's exactly what it means, exactly. I'm not going to protect you.
1: Meanwhile, Trump's sycophants in the House Republican caucus continue to prove that they, too, are owned by Trump and too petrified of him to do their job and provide aid to Ukraine, which is still very much at war with Russia. Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson refused to bring up the foreign aid package passed by the Senate earlier this week, and the House is going on recess today until the end of the month. So, no urgency, even as one senior Republican ignited a freakout over Russia's military capabilities— On Wednesday, House Intel Chair Mike Turner released a cryptic statement warning of a, quote, serious national security threat without any more detail. NBC News has learned the unspecified threat that set off speculation is a Russian nuclear-powered space asset that could be weaponized. Joining me now is Congressman Eric Swalwell of California, a member of the House Homeland Security Committee. Congressman, it is good to have you on. And, And so I guess the question would be, If Russia were to weaponize that space asset, that unspecified space asset, which side would Mike Johnson and his caucus be on?
5: (laughs) Uh, Ours or theirs? Joy, these guys are soft on Russia and they're soft on terrorism. They're soft on uh, dictators. And if if you're uh, Taiwan, you should also uh, wonder if all this bluster and, and all this talk that they've out there that they're going to be tough on China will really amount uh, to anything. and They've not proven that that's the case. And and so, of course, I was briefed on a concerning threat. I I can't go into the threat, uh, but uh, I get briefed on concerning threats all the time. And the most concerning threat uh, that Republicans should be focused on is walking away from Ukraine uh, and what it would mean uh, for the Ukrainians, uh, our NATO allies, and then us here in the United States, because it costs uh, no American blood right now uh, for what we're doing to defend Ukraine, but it's going to be a hell of a lot more exp- and expensive and in- what it's going to cost us in lives if we walk away uh, from Ukraine as the Republicans are allowing to happen.
1: What, what is going on? I mean, you have—I mean, I understand they love Russia because Donald Trump loves Russia, and they love whatever he loves. They like whatever he likes. They hate whatever he hates. So, they hate Ukraine because he hates Ukraine, because Ukraine wouldn't play ball and help him fake a scandal against Joe Biden. I get that. But, I mean, the Republican Party used to be, you know, pretty squarely anti-Soviet when Russia was part of the Soviet Union— you know, I still am old enough to remember Ronald Reagan with his, you know, tear down this wall about the Eastern Bloc and and against the the, the Russian like blocking. I just I don't understand how they morphed from this party that was Reagan's party that stood strong against the USSR to this. Is it just because they like Trump or raised, scared of him?
5: That's right. I, I was raised joy by Reagan uh, Republicans, uh, and my parents they wanted their taxes uh, to be low. Uh, they wanted their government. Uh, to be small, and they wanted us to be strong in the world and stand up uh, to Russia. And, and and they don't recognize uh, this party uh, today. But when you really you talk to many of my colleagues, uh, what it is, is they have gone all in for Donald Trump. And, and they're in this position now, and they've told me this privately, where they can't go against him. One of them said, if I come out against Trump, I'll have my head lopped off. And just imagine how small they see themselves and how helpless they feel uh, when they look at him. And so we can't count on Republicans to save us one bit. They're not going to save us. They are all in for him. The Republican Party that my parents uh, were a part of is gone today. And it's never coming back uh, as long as Donald Trump Uh, is the leader of their party. And so that's why Democrats are the ones who are tough on Russia. That's why Democrats are the ones, especially through Joe Biden, who wants to close the border while Republicans and Donald Trump are focused on closing abortion clinics. Right. I mean, this is never a place we thought we'd be. uh, But we are the ones uh, I, I think who are standing up for security interests everywhere of Americans.
1: But I think the pragmatic question then is if Donald Trump becomes president and he does, as he's threatening to do, stops defending NATO and Russia invades a NATO country, um, do these Republicans stand literally with Putin? Because it seems that Donald Trump would. Are they now going to stand with Putin if he invades a NATO ally?
5: This is a pro-Putin bloc party. Uh, right now. So, yes, Joy, there's no question in my mind uh, as to who they would stand with. It, it's a very simple calculation. Donald Trump likes Putin because Putin likes Donald Trump. So, we in Congress have to like Putin. And, and they're never going to break away from that. We just have to beat them. The good news is we have beaten them since November 2016. That was Donald Trump's best day. We continue to beat them. We don't have to drop a new playbook for uh, what's going to come at us uh, this coming November. And so I'm, I'm very confident that the American people are going to reject uh, somebody who would, you know, dismantle all of our freedoms uh, and, and allow us to side, uh, you know, with a ruthless dictator like Vladimir Putin.
1: Uh, and very quickly, I mean, you've talked to, we've talked about your parents before, my father leaned the same direction as them. How many of those voters do you think are in the Republican party who are willing to not vote Republican? Because it is a habit. People just vote by habit. Because a lot of these people who feel the way your parents do are still voting for Republicans.
5: Uh, They are. And Joy, I still believe, though, that the Republican Party and Donald Trump have a ceiling and it's a loud uh, group. It's a loud base, but it should not be confused as a growing uh, movement. And so, you know, again, for Americans, I think this election, uh, we don't make it about, you know, one candidate versus Uh, versus another. Uh, It's about an idea. And and that idea is freedom. And and we win when freedom is on the ballot. Freedom for women to make choices about their bodies, uh, freedom for our democracy and other democracies across the world. That's a winning message.
1: Yeah. Congressman Eric Swalwell, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. Sure. We'll be right back. And that's tonight's readout.
0: Did you hear that?